Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 24th of October. You'll be hearing this most likely on the 26th. So if things happen in the interim, as always, it's not my fault. It's not Tammy's fault. I'm here with Tammy. We have a great guest today that's going to be on in a second here. Tammy, like, tell, tell the people about our guest today. <laughs> Um, we're finally having a very good Enviro episode, which I know a lot of people have been wanting from us. Um, we have Kendra Pierre-Lewis on, who is an amazing climate reporter who's worked in a bunch of different media. Um, I thought our interview with her was great, right? She's so funny, so humble. She is really funny. Um, I liked her a lot. Yeah. You know, great. I always just evaluate our guests by like, would I want to hang out with them? <laughs> exactly. She and passed would, the Would it be test. fun to hang out? And I was like, yeah, I think it'd be pretty fun to hang out. <laughs> um talked a lot about race talk, and uh, climate, yeah. talked a lot about media, media and climate, protesting climate, mm-hmm. all things that are of very great interest to me that I actually don't know that much about. And I think I have like pretty like, you know, like baby brain takes about, but now <laughs> I feel much more educated yeah. on all of them. Um, Tammy, how are you doing? I'm okay. I went surfing again for a few days and there were How'd no the- waves, like none. Oh, yeah, that it was like a lake. But I learned a bunch of other things like how to turn really fast. How to turn? You know how when you're sitting on your board, you're watching. Oh, egg beaters. Yeah, egg yeah, beaters. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know there was a name for that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, my teacher was really good. Anyway, so <laughs> I'll keep going back. That's cool. I went to like this uh, place with um, my wife and kid this weekend in near Santa Cruz, between Santa Cruz and Monterey. Oh, did you surf? Or no, I didn't go surfing were, yeah. because. Um, I don't know. I think I'm like well, with mildly retired from surfing. Um, <laughs> I've replaced it entirely with tennis. Um, but I think that I'll probably start soon. Wait, again. so you're still on your tennis thing? Because it's kind of destroying your body. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> no, it's getting better. Oh, it's My getting shoulder, better. everything. Somebody tweeted at me. I think it was AL Press. Do you know who that is? Like, yeah, he's, he's like, a good yeah, friend. Yeah, yeah. 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 He, uh, he tweeted at me once. He's like, just fight through all of your injuries and they'll all eventually get better. Wait, really? AL? Yeah, and it's, it's been true. <laughs> oh, my God. That's, <laughs> yeah. That sounds they like all the worst better. advice my, ever, right? <laughs> my feet feel better. My knee feels better. I don't have tennis elbow anymore. The only thing problem I have is that I have like a sore shoulder, but then I just take some eye. Wait, so is the idea back. that you just will build up those muscles and then it'll be fine? I think so. I think it surfing much like or tennis, much like surfing yeah, is dependent say. on very weird muscles, okay. you know, that you don't use in your day to day life. Yeah. And so when you start, it is really painful because like you have to basically build all this stuff up. That's what I, yeah. Like for surfing, it's those upper back muscles. Right, right. So I've it's been doing like those. these land workouts every day. Oh my God, you're to... so committed. I'm trying. I feel like it's, um, yeah, my whole. Yeah. But um, once you build up all of that stuff, it just is like muscle memory and it'll just come back to you. And okay. um, 10 years down the line, you'll be fine. <laughs> um, but it's good to know. Uh, yeah, I went down there and we. Um, Was that saw, your kid's first time in that area? Uh, no, no, no. We go down there quite often. Oh, okay. But um, on the trip, we went down and we saw uh, Pebble Beach, you know, nice. and all like sort of the houses around there. It's crazy. It's like opulence that, you know, I had not been around very much um, in California. Wait, like maybe I'm thinking of something then. else. What is that then? I don't, I don't Pell think. Beach I is like a golf course. It's oh, very famous golf okay. course Never south mind. of Monterey. And okay. there's this I thing called 17 Mile Drive, which is quite beautiful. It's like the yeah. most beautiful coastline you can imagine in your life. Other than like Big Sur, like this is it. Wow. 
and there are all these gigantic mansions Ugh. built up along it and like they're like twelve thousand square foot like overlooking like the most beautiful coastline type of stuff they all cost that like sucks. 50 million dollars nobody actually lives there they just like helicopter in occasionally i think and then like you know have a party there or something oh, like that. that's it's so grim that's so I bad i don't know it's interesting to see i feel like that type of opulence is very much on the outs these days you know like rich people build bunkers in like new zealand and shit now they don't they don't like do this you know <laughs> they're all just like seasteading and plan b prepping now. right right they're just preppers now. <laughs> they prep like, like on safer ground you know right <laughs> I'm not immune to like rich people throwing money around and being kind of impressed by some of the stuff that they can come up with, you know, but like <laughs> giant houses on cliffs seem very like passe at this point, you know, for reasons, <laughs> Good, I'm many, glad. many reasons, some of them including climate reasons. I was going to say it um, seems climatey. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's get into our conversation with Kendra. Kendra, um, oh, I don't know. We discussed this on the, sh when we talked to her, but like I, really just sort of enjoy like many people i enjoyed her tweets you know like there was a lot of i will just say for a while they were like quite right in my wheelhouse of what i wanted to hear <laughs> <laughs> and that was all confirmed by our conversation yeah i was just like really oh my frank god about that. yeah yeah and like um we talk about climate we also talk about like stuff within media and mm -hmm. like what sorts of stories get greenlit i don't know that part i found to be yeah, very 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 like uh, accurate to my experiences in life um but i don't know it's, yeah it's, i know because uh, even though it's a different kind of writing the same bureaucratic and sort of political hurdles are there so yeah yeah it's like you know like newsrooms are interesting because like in your head you're like oh this is so dramatic and nobody really knows about it but everyone's so interested in it <laughs> but that like they should make tv shows about this stuff but they should absolutely never like it like there's a reason why they're all bad you know <laughs> Um, like the only good movie about a newsroom was broadcast news and it is an excellent movie but it's like more of a rom-com than anything I not to that. dismiss it in that I way i like but... spotlight too but i think it just makes you know it's just feel good as a journalist <laughs> oh you like spotlight it's, okay i know it's so cheesy <laughs> but i liked it i've seen it multiple times not gonna lie i'm like i need to you... feel good about my profession you know <laughs> but you get down in the dumps and you're just like what is the point of all this yeah and then i'm like oh my god the archives <laughs> 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 oh my god damn it you can edit that out if you want you know <laughs> i have no <laughs> like shame a... <laughs> i have no shame in this <laughs> um broadcast news is great though i love that movie. yeah i feel like we should have a screening of that or something. Talk about it on I the know. show. It's actually like one of my favorite movies. <laughs> Holly Hunter is wonderful in it. Um, um, oh, yeah, Jay. I want, also wanted to say that um, we want to wish Dan, one of our OG listener friends, a get well. Because he was hit when he was on his bike by a scooter in the city. So get well, Dan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Dan was in our Discord telling us. Dan, first of all, yes, Dan, please get well. I don't know. Biking in New York City is very scary. I myself crashed once. Dan told us a very funny story about how he fell in a well in our Bask NBA Discord in high school. And, you know, it was an interesting story. So, Dan, feel better. Um, and, uh, yeah, here's our conversation with Kendra. We're so excited today to have a special guest, 
Kendra Pierre-Lewis is a climate journalist and a contributor to The Atlantic. She has worked as a reporter at Gimlet's How to Save a Planet podcast, The New York Times, and Popular Science. And she wrote a terrific 2012 book called Greenwashed, Why We Can't Buy Our Way to a Green Planet. You may also know Kendra just from her amazing tweets, um, headlined under <laughs> Gloom is My Beat. Um, I especially enjoy her commentary on bad TV and condiments. Welcome, Kendra. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And this is you. where I'm just going to speak my truth and mayo is garbage. Um. <laughs> this is very offensive to all Asians. Just kidding. Mayo is garbage? <laughs> mayo is literally the worst food ever created. I go back and forth with it. Sometimes I feel like it's necessary. It's but then I feel necessary. like it was, it's if, it was if it was taken out of my life, I don't think I would miss it. You know, if it was if it was taken out of society, I feel like all wow. of our world's problems would be solved. Wow. <laughs> so you will never do an aioli, like even a delicious no. flavored mayo. Right. No, That's I don't just like, like an aioli. bougie mayo. I, I would. I'm with Kendra on that. You know, like do you know when you order fries now and they give you like an aioli and that's the only thing they give you really makes me upset you know you have to ask like, for I ketchup like a, and hot i like a refreshing cup of ketchup instead of this like <laughs> i don't want to like have this gloop <laughs> but sometimes so, when i eat a sandwich i want i want mayonnaise on it but i agree with you i admit that i also don't eat ketchup yeah. as a dip <laughs> i think it's terrible you know and i don't like this i don't like this like movement of having like creamier type of dips but know? kendra you lived in france so what did you do with your fries because that is literally okay. the only thing they will give you right I just didn't put anything on it. So France is actually really easy because the French don't – the thing that Americans do that I feel like no other culture does is they just shove things in places where you weren't expecting it. Like, so it makes it much harder to navigate, like, the menu. Like, to, to Jay's point, I've ordered fries before and then they just came covered in mayo and, like, nowhere on the menu did they say that they were going to do that to me. But they did. <laughs> And the French like don't do that. <laughs> like mayo and butter, it shows up in the places you expect it, it does to show up. That's true. Uh, that's true. In a little ramekin or whatever. Yeah. How was it? It does make me mad. So sometimes I go to these places, you know, around California and California, mm -hmm. like, you know, the places that are a little, they're not quite fancy, but they have like little fancy affectations to them. And sometimes when you order fries, right, they'll give you like three dips and none of them are ketchup, you know, and it'll be like... <laughs> There's been a real turn against ketchup recently. <laughs> no, it's like, like three it's forms of mayo, unfair. you know? Yeah. It's like pesto mayo. It's three aiolis. Wasabi mayo. Yeah, it's three aiolis. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want any of these aiolis. Just give me, just give me some the ketchup. I'm going to dump some Tabasco in it, and then I'm going to eat this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the one that absolutely drives me nuts is um creamy vinaigrette. The whole reason I am ordering a vinaigrette <laughs> is it's not to have it's dairy. Creamy. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you on that too. Oh my, yeah. There's too much. The mayo thing, though, I gotta say, sometimes on a sandwich, I actually do need mayo. But yeah, on, I don't know. As a dip, anyway. We're getting far <laughs> afield here. Um, okay, so uh, Kendra, you know, we wanted to have you on the show for a variety of reasons, but we, you know, for the listeners to get to know you, um, just tell us a little bit about how you sort of became you know, a reporter and working in this space, because it's not a traditional path, right? Like you, um, no. in any way. So, so just give things. us a sense of that. <laughs> I, I, it's, I often say that my path is not, it's both hopeful, because if you're not a journalist, but you've sort of decided that you want to be one, it's, it shows that there is a way, but it's definitely not replicable. It's not like the <laughs> path I charted out for myself and the goals of becoming 
a journalist one day. Um, so I graduated, I went to college um, and I graduated with a degree in economics. And even towards the tail end of my college experience, I knew that I had an interest in the environment, but I didn't really know what to do with it. I did kind of the typical thing you do in your 20s, which is I b- bounced around a lot of like random jobs. I worked for a test preparation company for a couple of years. I quit to run off to France to teach English and avoid condiments. Um, (laughs) uh, I came back and eventually ended up getting a graduate degree for sustainable development and uh, in sustainable development and finished right as the economy was collapsing, right as the Great Recession was happening. And so I ended up doing a lot of terrible internships or poorly paid internships and just sort of bouncing around some more vaguely in the climate and environmental space. So like I worked for, uh, I interned with an environmental consulting firm. I briefly worked for an, an, an a conservation biolo- biology nonprofit um, and eventually landing up at a for-profit sustainability consulting firm where I worked for a couple of years before pivoting to working at the sustainability arm of um, an affordable housing nonprofit. And I did that for about a year. And somewhere in that mix, I, I came up with an idea for a book, pitched it, and sold it. Um, with no, it, it's the thing that I think you do when you're when you're young and relatively uh, ignorant, <laughs> because I had no concept of sort of like the like that this was supposed to be something hard. You know, I literally like yeah. woke up one day and was like, I'm going to write a book. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> that's good energy. I need that right now. <laughs> Um, later on, like in retrospect, I was like kind of chaotic. And the other thing that I, I feel like is really important because I think people in the journalism space don't talk about it enough is I did not grow up affluent. So it's not like my parents were, I was pretty much like, that's why I was working so many random jobs. I was pretty much just, you know, whatever, you know, I think when I was in grad school, the first time I ended up getting, I mean, I decorated Christmas tree wreaths one year because for $8 an hour under the table, because it was like easy money and like, you could kind of get it last minute. But the thing that I did have that I think was really lucky is my parents own a home in New York City. And so a lot of this boomeranging around, I was like ending up in like my childhood bedroom or like living in the basement. And that was sort of like the the base of stability I had was that I often was able to come back to New York and not have to make rent, which is huge, right? So right. it is a form of a yeah. subsidy, um, but they weren't, <laughs> but they weren't, you know, like renting an apartment for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's you, the, you kind of did the full range of stuff that people do in their 20s when they're trying to get into something that's difficult to get into, but they can't not work. You know, I think that's some of yeah. the thing, one of the things that people don't quite get about our industry is that like, if you have two to three years where you can just kind of try very hard, yeah. but you don't have to worry so much about money, then your chances of succeeding are so much higher than somebody who is trying while also doing a job. And it's basically the timeline gets shrunk down by like 80% or something like that, you know? Yeah. And to your point, exactly. When I was working for the affordable housing nonprofit, that was when I really decided to take journalism seriously. So Mm -hmm. I joined the Society of Environmental Journalists, got a mentor, was, you know, pitching freelance stories on a pretty consistent basis. And I'd given myself a year timeline where if at the end of the year, if I couldn't get a job, a full-time job in journalism or make enough money freelancing, I was going to go to J school. And I did that year timeline and I got to the end and I couldn't get a job. 
Um, and I couldn't support myself freelancing. So I applied to J school um, and I applied to four and I got into all four. And one, I immediately was like, you cost too much money. Cause that was the other thing. I was very, <laughs> yeah, and I think totally. that's the other thing that I think comes with age is that I was very much like, I'm not going into debt for this. I was like five or six grand, fine. But anything more than yeah. that, I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm not yeah. going into significant debt for this because journalism doesn't pay. This isn't a wise right. decision. Yeah. I appreciate you're talking about all that. Yeah. yeah. And one of the programs that accepted me was MIT. And I was pretty adamant that I wasn't going to go because I hate, I, at the time I hated Boston. Um, <laughs> But they gave me a ton of money. And so I was like, at minimum, you have to check it out because like you can't turn down this kind of money. And the program director, this woman, Shannon, is just a delight. And and they were just so warm when I went to visit. And the program is really small. It's only like eight to 10 students a year. And it just really felt like the right place to be. And so at the time, I was not living in my parents' basement. I was um, living in a dirt cheap apartment in Queens. It was 700 a month for a tiny studio, but it was all mine. And I had to give it up. Um, but the timing ended up being perfect because the building got bought out anyway. And now they, you know, now it's way more expensive. Oh, man. <laughs> um, and so this is where I think luck comes into it, which is, I, I you know, I'd been working on the periphery of, of climate environment for several years at that point. So I had this like ground, this base level of knowledge. And then I went to J school and I had like the credential. And I landed a, a fellowship with ICFJ, which let me go to India and Myanmar for a month. So I finished my summer internship at MIT, like August 28th, and I flew out to Myanmar the next day. I put everything wow. in storage um, for a month, and then I came back and didn't have a job. And so I moved back to my home, <laughs> my childhood home. <laughs> and, um, and a couple months later, I got the job at PopSci. So I was like unemployed after wow. graduation for about two and a half months. It was pretty fast. And that's right. the other, the luck part is that I finished school with the goal of doing environmental journalism at the exact moment that newsrooms realized they'd screwed up when mm. they'd killed all their environmental jo- deaths during the Great Recession. So there were just so many more climate jobs when I came out and so many people who had left the industry. So there was far less competition. <laughs> I shouldn't be saying this. I should just be like, I was brilliant. Well, timing and luck is like a huge part of all this stuff. But like, I don't know why, why, what made you think, want, you know, you're working in this space, right? You're working in the nonprofit and the for-profit space in um, sustainability and you are, decide that you want to go do journalism, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's, it's an interesting question because I think sometimes people who are part of that nonprofit world, right? And um, I don't know, I'm thinking like specifically here about like homelessness, or, which is something mm-hmm. that I write about, right? That if you talk to some of the people in that nonprofit space, like, the idea that they feel like, oh, I can make a big change through like the media, it's not really like I don't think that they would deny that that's true, but they would also say, well, I'm making a big difference doing what I'm doing, and the journalists are just gonna like do the thing that they do, right? Um, and then I think that now we have other examples of people who are sort of doing journalism on the environment that's like very pointed and you know mm-hmm. clearly like, and almost polemical, right? Um, yeah. uh, before maybe it's just like. Bill McKibben was doing that, right? Mm-hmm. But um, but now it seems much more, it seems different. But like, what? Wh- why did you? Why did you decide that like journalism was the was like a good place to to do this type of work? Yeah. So um, this is straight narcissism on my part. I'd always been a writer from when I was a little kid, and I just felt like it was a that was the compulsion, like it was a thing that I needed to do. And all of these jobs, I felt like I was dying. And in the case of never. <laughs> 
<laughs> not know what you're making it I was laughing because I also went from nonprofit to journalism, so I totally understand. Yeah, for the same <laughs> and, reason, pure narcissism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> and I also think just like, I think people think nonprofit and they think like you are often having direct connectivity with the people that you're serving. And that is one form of nonprofit. But the nonprofit that I worked for was just as corporate as any corporation. Mm. Literally, they were on Wall Street. Um, and they had like close relationships with banks. So it didn't feel like I, I very rarely felt like I was helping or in service to anyone. It more felt like I was like another cog in the machine, another widget. And I think I was like, if I'm going to feel that way, I might as well and I'm not going to make an insane amount of money. I might as well go and do the thing that I actually really enjoy doing, which is writing and reporting and make that my focus as opposed to working in this nonprofit space. I've been always curious about it, right? Like, what are some of the changes that are happening in that? Like, as people are more aware, right? Or as people, like, are more concerned about the environment. Like sometimes I think, like I, I remember I had this issue. I, 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 this has no, this has absolutely nothing to do with the people who actually made this stuff, but I would think about it because it, I worked on this television show, nightly news show. Mm-hmm. We had a climate correspondent, you know, and mm-hmm. the climate correspondent would go around, and the concern, at least on my part, was like basically that it's a documentary news show and stump stuff has to happen. So my job for a while is to go to protests and get tear gas, which is exciting footage, you know, <laughs> and like, you know, and one can make every single argument about the exploitativeness of, of it and the company that I work for, which was vice. And like, you would be right about all of it, you know, <laughs> but it is good footage to see like me getting tear gassed, you know, and being like, oh. over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Just over and over. Like, well, I'm in Louisiana today. Oh, you know, like, like that was basically the beat. Right. But the, the climate correspondent, it was like very hard to find things that like would make good footage. Right. And yep. so what they did in the end was that they sort of shipped her all around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, be standing on like a boat in front of like a fjord or something like that and then be like this fjord is maybe melting you know and it'd be like well that is a beautiful vista that that we're seeing here and that's sort of how they solve that problem but there was like a lack of action right and i i I, it made me sort of think this was like there's such incrementalism when it comes to this and yet such apocalyptic results and then it's hard to bridge narratively. So like, how, how have you sort of dealt with that in your in your career? Yeah, so I think two things. When I worked at the Times, I had an art director who said that same exact thing. And and one of the first like feature stories that I got to do at the Times is they shipped me out to like Tahoe area. And it was supposed to be about bears and how the bears weren't hibernating because of climate change. And that year, the bears decided to hibernate. And it's a relationship. It's like a snow relationship. And so we couldn't find any effing bears. <laughs> California and there were no bears it's like a Christopher <laughs> it's like a Christopher guest movie I know, you know? exactly <laughs> wait so was there a scientific <laughs> reason for that that's fascinating yeah and the scientific reason in general why bears hibernate is um or we're specifically talking about black bears right. it's um often a relationship not just between how cold it gets but also the level of snowpack and I it see. had just been a relatively cold and snowpacky winter <laughs> and, this is and like the, the right way late. right and they're like it snowed so there's no global warming like (laughs) yeah that's really funny exactly which is why like i think global weirding is like the best definition but anyway our art director had found this photo of like a bear 
on a not a photo the sketch of a bear on like laying on a branch and she just added in a phone and the caption bubble caption read you know like he was late night texting someone and it just read you up you know so i think that's awesome i think especially if you're talking print i think it's a little bit harder in video because if you're talking video then you're moving to animation and animation can get very expensive very quickly right right, but i think with print and and like Mm. digital like text that's a lot where images come in we did another story where um like drawings come in where it was um because of climate as extreme weather becomes more repetitive people kind of adapt to it so they don't notice that it's like that like I often have this conversation. I'm from New York. I'm in New York now with people who don't realize that New York summers didn't always used to be this hot because especially if you moved here in the past 10 years, that's just your norm. Yeah. And so she did, she, she commissioned this art and it's just like adorable girl playing on a beach, you know, jump, jump roping or whatever. It's like the most bucolic image, but everything is like this insane shade of red. And like, you can tell that like, she's actually like, having fun in a fiery hellscape. And it's just like interesting <laughs> combination of images. And to your point, that's how you get around some of it. And I think that, I think this is a pro and a con, but like for a long time, especially we couldn't, like there was issues with the science. So like attribution science, which is ability to say this climate change impacted this event in this way. That's super new. Like I think Harvey was kind of the first, 2017, Harvey and Maria were kind of the first time for rapid attribution. So I think like within three weeks of Hurricane Harvey, we could say something like 40% of its rain call was, rainfall was because of climate change. And so having that information is relatively new. Um, so that made the storytelling even harder because for a long time you were going, you had to use like really hedgy languages that like right, climate right. change may have made this thing more likely, <laughs> exactly. but you couldn't be like, right. and now, and the other thing is scientists themselves have become more, I don't want to say radicalized, that sounds more severe, but now like when you call them, like they don't use hedge words in those ways or sort yeah. of like everything that is happening is happening against a backdrop of a warming climate. So we can't say that like climate change caused, I don't know, this rainstorm, but we can say it's wetter because the atmosphere is hotter. Yeah. That's really interesting. I noticed that too. I was thinking about that recently where it's like, you know, like how in Oregon there have been now there have been mm-hmm. like two record heat events in the last yep. four years or something like that. And the first one was like 110 degrees and all those people died. Mm-hmm. And then it happened again. And both of them are just like totally unprecedented. It's like there will be people who are like live there who just, you know, who might have moved there recently who just think, well, every four years there's this thing that happened and it just had yeah. never happened before, you know? I moved to Boston in September. 2015 and it was during a heat wave and I didn't know it during it was the first time Boston had had like 390 degree plus days in September and I had no idea because I'd never lived in Boston before and in New York you can get 90 degree days in September so it didn't strike me as unusual until like my roommate was complaining and she'd grown up in a Boston suburb and I was like oh (laughs) this is weird this is climate change same thing here and with like fires you know wildfires like uh Mm -hmm. So the first real huge, there was a huge wildfire here in the Bay Area in 1990 and a lot of Oakland mm-hmm. and Berkeley burned down. And um, and then, but since I've been here for the last three years, it happens every single year. It just seems normal, you know? Yeah. And the people who have lived here a long time are like, no, this is not normal. This <laughs> never happened when I was a kid and now it happens every year. And I'm just like, oh, well, let's go back to then. You know, these, fire, these fires are terrible. <laughs> like, I can't go of, outside. In the case of California in particular, there is historical evidence that suggests some burning should have happened. So part of why it wasn't burning is because of the Forest Service's um, uh, fire suppression. And so the reality is, is that like some, there should have been some burning and the fires are worse now, both because of the lack of historical burning and because of climate change. So their memory, it's kind of interesting. So their memories are both correct, but also 
a little bit wrong as to what like the natural ecology should have been, but they shouldn't, the fire shouldn't have been, you know, the catastrophic fires that we're seeing in California and much of the West, they shouldn't be at that scale. It shouldn't be like days and days. It shouldn't be that we're breathing in your smoke. Right. That was like during some sporting event where they're like the smoke from Oregon has is clouding out the sky in New York. And I was Can like, you what? I know. Ow. <laughs> you know. A couple years back, 2019, I was on this weird NASA flight where they were literally flying into wildfire smoke because they want to get a better understanding of like what's in the smoke yeah. columns and how that what that tells us about fire behavior, but also what is that doing to people? Um, and the evidence so far is not great. You know, wait, uh, wait, can you go back? You were in so a NASA flight that was purposefully flying into smoke columns. Yeah. That and every so awesome. often, and because the plane is um open on the bottom for the sensors or whatever, oh the God. plane would fill up with smoke too. Wow. What was that like? I mean, that sounds that intense. But... It was wa- So it, you're in a so... plane that was like careening into like a smoke column? <laughs> you can't see why, why your legs you, choking you on the smoke. Why did you do that? I would have never gotten on that plane. I don't even like flying to LA. You know? Well, I don't like flying either. Um, it comes with the business of being a client reporter. Yeah. It was very bumpy because you're going down. You're not at um, whatever cruising altitude is when you're doing that. You're going into it. So you're flying down. And the entire time you're going like this. Wow. And the flight was, I think, like eight hours long. And when the turbulence first hit, I was like having the like white knuckle and like, yeah, I'm not going to survive this. Hours? You know, And by the end, you're napping. You know, because you did, the body can oh only God. handle so much stress. And then it's just sort of like, this is getting kind of boring. Yeah. You know, like we've been doing this for several hours. I think I'm just going to take a nap. It wasn't smoke poisoning. I'm like, it's not oh. that much. Smoke. It's it's kind of like the level of smoke where you burn something in the kitchen and you can kind of see it okay. and smell it in like the adjoining gotcha. room. It was that level. Oh, Jay and I are picturing that. you in this like cloud, of smoke, like <laughs> unable know, to like see, doing or like smoke jumping or something like that. <laughs> All right, well, let, let's talk a bit. Like something that you write about quite a bit is the idea of protest, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and we wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. And you know, like I, I don't know, it's in the news right now a lot, obviously because of these painting protests, mm-hmm. right? Like somebody just did a Monet, I think, a couple of days ago, and there was a Van Gogh. Um, the Van Gogh was soup, and the Monet, I believe, was mashed potatoes. Mashed potatoes, right. Mm-hmm. Which I think somebody did point out very well. Like, how did they get the mashed potatoes in the <laughs> in the museum? Which I, I don't It's a really good question. But then Maybe I saw, they put it in a water bottle? Yeah, I saw a lot of mm-hmm. good theories about it, which was that they had powdered mashed potatoes, you know? And they went to and the then they got a bottle water. of water and they mixed them together. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, wait. That's really I like how that's the fixation. Like what? <laughs> I'm sorry, that was my fixation. You know, I was just like, oh my goodness. But you know, like it sort of brought out like a new, for the first time in a while, I think, right? Like it sort of brought out a idea of like um, big stunty type of yeah. uh, eco protest that was sort of the hallmark of the 80s, right? Or um, or that these big newsworthy things that are happening are going to be happening again, but definitely on a different scale than they were before, right? Like before they would try and blow stuff up. And this seems much more social media oriented. Well, if you're talking ELF, they weren't blowing stuff up. They were mo- or they were blowing a couple things up, but they were mostly setting fires. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're talking about the Earth Liberation Front. Earth right? Liberation Front. <laughs> Earth Liberation Front, right. So um, one Not of that I'm that- defending it. I'm just saying like, you know. Yeah. 
accuracy, I guess. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so we um, might be defending it a little. Yeah, <laughs> burning things as opposed to oh, and only blowing up a couple things, right? Oh, um, I was just gonna say. Remember, they also did all this stuff in the Northwest where they were like spray painting dams, and mm-hmm. you know there was a lot of kind of different kinds of activity tailored to like the space, yeah. right? Um, so can you just give us a little bit of a history of that? You know, like, I mean, I, I, it's a big question, but like, you know, like where, like what, what is like the past like 20 years in terms of if you could just give it a, like a broad sense of like what the different movements have been, the ebbs and flows of this and where yeah. we're at right now. So I think the Earth Liberation Front's a good place to start. I think they peaked in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s, but my timeline might be wrong because I still kind of live in a COVID bubble. So what is time? And the big thing and the reason um, it's worth talking about, there's actually a really good BBC podcast documentary about it called um, Burn Wild. Um, And the reason they're worth bringing up is because of sort of like what came out of it. And they were the kind of the first big environmental movement to be labeled as terrorists. And they kind of created and they the government kind of created the eco-terrorist label because of them. Mm-hmm. And it brought all sorts of scrutiny among environmental movements sort of generally, even the ones that were not sort of engaging in these kinds of, um, I don't even know if you call them direct action because it's more than just direct action. And so I think for a long time, a lot of like post that, a lot of the, the mainstream environmental movement, you would get some sit-ins, you would get some, you know, Greenpeace would drop a poster from something or they would like block a whaling boat. Um, you would get, you know, you still have those sorts of actions, but by and large, I think it was a lot still kind of pretty much driven from the national environmental organization. So it was like a lot of petition writing and a lot of sort of like, you know, you there was like the big climate protests, I think, in 2014 and a lot of like taking it to the streets. But those are sort of very kind of traditional and controlled. And I think sort of beginning maybe five years ago, it's become a little bit more different, more varied. So, you know, you had Greta with the Fridays for the Future protests, and then you got Extinction Rebellion, which was doing a lot of sort of disruption, so like blocking streets and those sorts of things. And then at this point, you also have, um, I think they're called like Justice for Oil or something. The Stop Oil. Stop Oil. Yeah. yeah. Those are the ones who are doing the um, soup can, the art stuff. And I think just sort of as a country, we're kind of an, in, an interesting place. And, and then there were, sorry, there were also a couple of other things like the pipeline defenders. So like there were people yeah. who were the valve defenders who were turning off pipeline valves. Um, and that was kind of as aggressive as it got, um, which was turning off a pipeline valve, but not like destroying the pipeline. Right. Um, where would you place and, like Standing Rock kind of stuff in that too? Is that? Yeah, Standing Rock was an, a, like a big tipping point, I think, in terms yeah. of direct action, but it was also a big tipping point in temp- terms of legislation. So uh-huh. they're like... As standing right was happening, more and more legislation popped up to kind of prohibit those kinds of behaviors. And so there's been this push and pull tension where there is more activism happening, but there's also more legislation coming up against that activism. I mean, so much to the extent of like, there are a bunch of states that passed rules where they were trying to make it illegal to like photograph farms. I was just so that like, yeah, it reminds me of that, the animal lab stuff in reaction to PETA. Yeah. And and the question that I that I think is really interesting and sort of more bigger picture about more than just tactics is that um a lot of the youth stuff I think is coming from a place of feeling young and disempowered right because if you're talking especially like Fridays from the future these are you you can't vote yet even right so like there isn't a lot that you feel like you can do but I think more broadly if you look at the data on attitudes around climate change in this country I think the the narrative 
um, is very much still stuck in the 1990s or even the early 2000s, which is this idea that a lot of people still need convincing. And that just isn't true. So Yale, uh, Yale Center on Climate Communication, I believe is the name. I feel like don't quite quote me, but they do these surveys every year called like the Six America Surveys that look at attitudes about climate change. And the vast majority of Americans are either concerned or alarmed about climate change. Most people care. There are very few climate denialists. Like some of them maybe are outsized in terms of their political position, but like in terms of actual attitudes. And the question then becomes, well, what do you do with that energy? And I don't I don't have any issues with protest. This isn't me coming down and being like, nobody should protest. You should vote. Like that narrative, I think, A, doesn't work. People have been voting for a really long time. But B, like there's something in the middle between taking it to the sh- – like, okay, so we did an episode on How to Save a Planet that was kind of about this, which was um, our then-host Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson had gone to a big climate protest in D.C. with one of her good friends. And at the end of it, he was like, this was awesome. This was great. When's the next protest? And she sort of looked at him and she was like, no. And he was like, no. And she was like, no. Like, (laughs) the whole point of this is to get people together, to feel energized. But then you have to go home and do the work. And I feel like a little bit of that part of the conversation is missing, which is what is the work beyond voting? Right. That Actually, that was a question that I wanted to ask you, which is like, really like, you know, like 2014, the protest was gigantic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that that there was, I think it's still the biggest yeah. one day assembly of people um, in a protest, I think in American history, I think it's mm-hmm. that 2014 protest. And I just remember because I was working in Times Square at the time, you know, and uh, like, it was very interesting that like nobody talked about the fact that there was like hundreds of thousands of people like pretty close by. Mm -hmm. Right. And that we have these big events, right? Like we have Mm -hmm. this, you know, whatever the, the sort of painting stuff is getting a ton of attention or Greta is like a celebrity beyond a celebrity, like one of the most famous people in the world, I would think. Right. And yet, um, I think that in terms of for the average person, right. Mm -hmm. Trying to figure out what the coherent, argument is about what they can do is still a little bit lost, right? Like you have all these, and part of it is because these are not, this is not like a monolithic group that's like somehow connecting Greta and the suit people and all these people together, right? Like these are different groups working independently, but like, I don't know, like, well, you've studied these protests for quite a bit, or you've reported on them and you've, yeah. you know them quite intimately. Like, do you think that there is like the beginning of some sort of like coherent message or anything like that that's coming out of it? I mean, I think it gets to your point of like, it isn't a coherent group. So if you look at, um, God, what are their names? Um, the group of young people who sat in, I believe, Senator Feinstein's office. Yeah, Sunrise. Then, uh, yeah, the right, Sunrise right, Movement. Right, they sunrise were movement. part of getting the uh, Investment Reduction Act passed, right? So like... Different groups were doing, and we can argue that it wasn't enough, that it made sacrifices on the backs of, you know, um, communities of color. Like, there are real, like, criticisms of that bill. So so it really depends on, like, which group that you're talking about. But also, I think there's this other element, which is, I don't think it's, I don't know. So, like, something that I've been thinking about a lot, and I think taking back to the, the, the suit protest for a second, is that one of the things that I think was really interesting is that on Twitter, there was a lot of discourse. And even within like the climate space, people were really split. Some people felt that like throwing food at objects of art is just going to get people to hate climate activists and not like them. And some people were like, well, it raises attention. But one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot because I've been working on this 
piece for way too long, sort of looking at the nature of protest and public conception, is that how often the way we're taught about protest in the United States dates back to the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And the way we're taught about it is disentangled from like what the, the, the levers of power that these people were trying to pull, right? So the one that I've been thinking about a lot because of the youth climate movement, because we're talking about young people, is do you know about the Children's Crusade? Yeah. For people who don't, like in the 1960s, there was this huge march um, in, I believe, Alabama where children mm. were arrested. Actually, they marched and then they were arrested and they were like locked in prison for a while. Um, and so many of them that they couldn't actually put them in the prisons. They had to put them in special like places because there were too many kids. And part of the motivation behind that was because it was getting too expensive for the adults to get to march. They would get in prison <laughs> and they'd have to get bailed out. Yeah, wow. Because they couldn't not work, right? Like if you're an adult, like you have responsibilities, you can only spend so much time in prison. But kids, especially kids on summer vacation, don't have jobs. So who can be incarcerated, right? Children can be incarcerated. And not only were you not bailing them out, but now you are becoming a cost to the state because they have to feed these kids, right? So So like it wasn't, it was tactical in a way that I feel like some of these actions, people don't necessarily understand the connection between the thing that they're protesting. And I think that was a lot of the criticism about the throwing food against art. And I think a lot of people are still confused. And actually, somebody just messaged me today, like, why why are they destroying art? Because they didn't understand that, like, they were deliberately picking pieces of art that were covered up. And so I think what ends up happening is you end up having these meta conversations about the utility of protests and about the nature of these protests and not actually about climate change. Mm. There was a protest today that I think it was today that I thought was kind of interesting. There were a bunch of protesters who took over the audience of The View to call out ABC for not reporting enough on climate change. And they got into it a little bit with Whoopi and it ended up oh, on the, the internet. View? That's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, The View. Oh, yeah. wow. Like Joey Bay. How'd they do that? They, like... they just want, they, you just sign up for tickets. Block you of get tickets. Enough of your... <laughs> Listen, sign me so, up for that protest movement. What did Whoopi say? Um, I only saw yo, a small yo, clip Joy of it. Uh, so contrary to prior, you know, I don't actually watch a lot of The View. But she was sort of saying, like, it's because Ted Cruz was there and Ted Cruz has notably been anti-climate action. Oh, right, and yeah. she was sort of saying, like, we are talking about it. And she was like, and the 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 climate protester screamed back and was like, no, you're not talking about it. ABC only talked about climate change this many hours in 2021. So they had the backing of it, right? And so I don't know whether or not that's effective. I don't, I'm not going to go down that meta-analysis, but it, but the connection between why they were protesting and where they were protesting was really clear. You don't need an explanation for that, right? Like if you were a listener or a watcher of The View that day, yeah. you understood. You may not have agreed with them, but there wasn't – you didn't need to do extra work to understand why they were doing what they were doing. Right, and it was a clear demand to say, hey, you network – cover this more right which is i don't know it's interesting i i think about that quite a bit too where i I do think that what you said about the civil rights movement is absolutely correct and that people's understanding of the civil rights movement is totally off right like they feel like um for example they think well you know john lewis they just were like peacefully walking across the edmund pettus bridge and they got attacked by the you know by the alabama state patrol or whatever right which is not true like they wanted to be attacked on television right. to make it seem like they were being to at least show the level of violence that was willing and children's crusade the same thing like yeah people do not want to see kids in jail yeah yeah you can be pretty racist and be like i don't think that kids need to be in jail you know and so like um it was it, or even the Montgomery odd. bus boycott. That was Definitely if they didn't have selling, black yeah. dollars, they weren't going to. And and if they didn't have black dollars, the bus system was going to go out of business. They didn't concede because they suddenly believed in equality. They conceded right. because they were going bankrupt. 
Right. And that also yeah. took like years, by the way, yeah. you know, and so and like, there was a whole coordination of ad hoc right. taxis and like people right, walking right, right, miles and miles right. to make that possible. Right. right. And I, I think sometimes today, like the idea is because attention is so fast because of social media that like when they say like we're just trying. I, I saw one of the climate activists who threw the pain at the, mm-hmm. at, you know, at, at the Van Gogh speaking and she was talking about we're we want media attention and we want to raise awareness. And part of my mind was like, okay, you've raised awareness, you know, but like, like what, what is the goal of this? Right. Like, you know, like, um, what is the awareness for now? That sounds like kind of like an old annoying thing that I would say, but like, I don't know if raising social media awareness is the same as what, as raising awareness was like in 1965, 1969, 1958, whatever. Right. Like where like the entire country would watch these scenes and that, like most people already know what the, you know, like most people are already aware of the things that the, that those climate activists were talking about. Right. And so like, there's no like new, you're just like the thing where I do feel like they are effective. And the reason why I feel like I ultimately would defend that type of protest, mm-hmm. even though I generally am just like all protest is good. So it's fine. <laughs> but like, I would, I would say that like, if their goal was to shock people into like, that and the, to try and like create in some people like why would these people do this you know mm-hmm. and then to just sort of kind of hear at least for a little second what they're saying but even if they close up immediately and say wow you know like they start having that meta conversation that you're having or they're just repulsed by all of it that that like tiny second where they're like hearing you is worthwhile because they've been shocked into being forced to hear you and i would say like that like yeah. that is a very real possibility you know that might have happened with a lot of people but like the question of just like saying awareness, it's good to have awareness. Like, I don't know. Sometimes I don't know what that is, what that means in like social media age. But Did you? I guess. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. And I just wanted yeah. to add to that. Like, I think for me also, when I started, when I saw those art protests, it reminded me of kind of traffic blockage mm-hmm. tactics, just in the sense of like, they're saying this is an apocalypse and we just shouldn't live normally. Like, we're just going to disrupt your lives. We're going to make things inconvenient so that we like reflect so I felt like it was, yeah, some of it was a kind of like awareness thing, but also it was just like this, I think this tactic of like making people uncomfortable, making things like jammed up, you know? So I wonder right. how how you feel about that. I think, um, well, I guess there are two th- threads. One, which is um, a friend of mine, uh, I'm not going to say her name because she said it kind of confidentially, but she, one of the things that she said is that the nature of that protest sort of assumes that you have a feeling for the art underneath it. And that you actually have a certain respect for museums. Um, and absent that, like, it, it even has, like, less weight for you. And it's interesting because, it, I don't know. I don't know. I actually don't know how I feel about it. But, like, the it's interesting because, like, earlier, a couple years ago, maybe there were a lot of, like, the, the stealing things out of – or the reclaiming of things from museums that had been right. stolen through colonialism. And so that's an act where, like, the connection is just really clear right, and really right, right. transparent. There were also, like, in November of last year, there were all of these uh, mostly youth activists. I think there was one where it was, like, a mother and a daughter that they were – blocking the coal export ports in Australia. It's Australia's largest yeah. coal export port. And those were the connection was really clear. And yeah, and it kind of is, I think, a little bit closer to the traffic protests that you were talking about. To Jay's point, I think people understand that climate change is happening, but I don't think people have internalized it. Yeah. Um, I had an, I, I recently went to Florida. It was the first time I flew, and uh, second time. I, I technically went to Greenland in the summer, but it was the first time I flew recreationally. 
uh, since COVID happened because oh, wow. I've just been making a decision to fly less because of climate change. Yeah. And um, and if you really want to go to a place where nobody is thinking about climate change, I, I strongly recommend, <laughs> or where it feels like, I shouldn't say that word, feels like. Or COVID, yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> yep. <laughs> I cannot I cannot recommend Central Florida more to you. Um, yeah, and so I think, I think that isn't translated into behaviors and I don't think it's translated into systems, right? Like forget about it. Like one of the things that we talk a lot about at, at How to Save a Planet, RIP, is the whole goal of the show was to kind of breach that gap. The whole point was like, you know about climate change, you're terrified, you don't know what to do. Maybe you've gone to a climate protest or two. What are levers that you can pull mm-hmm. in partnership or in coordination with other people to do something about it? And one of the biggest things that I think we did as a sh- well, there are two things. One is Climate change is a big problem, but it doesn't have a single cause. It has many causes. So how do you break down those causes into discrete things that people can understand and be like, this is a thing I or you can change, right? There's that one element. And the other thing I think we did was we just gave people permission. Because I think so much of the rhetoric and the narrative of the way we talk about politics, the way we talk about social change in the media, is like there's an adult in the room and your job is to vote for the adult in the room. Right. Yeah. And what Absolutely. we did as a show is we were like, you're the adult in the room. Go do something. Right. And then people did. That was a, There was a, a group in, so in California that stopped an Exxon project in their community. Um, there was a woman who wow. saved the recycling project in her town. There was a dude who ran for public utility board and won. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's definitely like a really, growing thing. Yeah, when you know <laughs> you've really like, if it was when somebody decides that they're going to run for public utility board. <laughs> and he was like the first like, person to like really campaign for it too. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm not going to, my job is going to be public utility board, and uh, but I'm doing this because I believe in it. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. That adult in the room dynamic thing is very real, you know, and it's unfortunate and it's how the media functions these days where they just say well who is the most realistic of these options and why are these children acting these types of ways <laughs> um i had one of the, the one of the things we wanted to talk to you was about like how climate and warming or weirding as you say stuff gets like reported out in the media and some of the dynamics in it um you know one of the ways in which i was sort of put on to your work was that you would tweet about like your time at the new york times right mm-hmm. and you would talk about like racial dynamics within the newsroom, especially within a space where there are not a lot of black reporters, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which is, um, in fact, I think that I can't really think of many others, you know? There's Um, Drew Costley at the AP. Right, right. But I'm sure that's how you (laughs) felt, right? Which is just Brett and Mock at City Lab. (laughs) (laughs) We we have a secret club. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) You have like a a Slack room or something like that. We have a group chat, all five of us. Um, Um, What what, what is that like, right? Like, um, I think that it is not totally fair to just say that climate uh, coverage, climate is an extremely white space, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Environmental concerns have always been that way. It's one of the long standing criticisms of it. And yet there seems to be some changes, I think recently, but like 
pretty slow moving, right? And um, yeah, like, can you just talk about your time there and like, you know, like what some of the challenges are of, of being a black climate reporter? Sure. So in, I was at the Times for two years and seven months and three days and six hours. No, I'm kidding. Um, but- <laughs> <laughs> the prison tally uh, but- on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Um, but it was, I believe it was two years and seven months. And in that time, I wrote one, two, two and a half, or I guess three stories about climate and communities of color. And I later found out total. Um, and it's not because I didn't pitch other ones. It's because I couldn't get them greenlit. Um, the, the first time I realized that there was going to be a problem is um, I'd, heard about a, I'd heard about work uh, research that looked at how segregation impacts um, air pollution. Basically, the more segregated your communities, the higher the overall level of air pollution is. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was cool. And But the problem was, is that the research was kind of old. Um, uh, like it had come out 2013, 2014, 2015, and you know, we're in the news business. But I called one of the lead researchers anyway, and she ended the conversation with this statement, which was, um, every time I talk to reporters about this, the like disparate impacts gets in, but the segregation part gets left out. Mm. And I was like, that's messed up. And so I was like really determined to get the segregation impacts put in because I thought it was really important. Um, or in a story. And at the time, the Times had been doing like, I don't know, 40 or 50 year retrospective on the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. And so it was a really good way of fitting that in because King had said a lot about the impacts of segregation and how segregation isn't just bad for black people, but it's also bad for white people. And I was like, great, this is a great peg. And so I wrote up the story and uh, filed it. And it was, I thought it was going to be, you know, we went through multiple rounds of edits. And the day before, I think it was like a Thursday, I overheard an editor that I quietly called to myself, called uh, the racist editor to myself, kind of complaining about the piece, not to me, but to a different editor. Mm. And for people who don't work at the time, who have not worked at the Times, the Times is a very editor-driven institution. They, like, there are some institutions that are more reporter-driven, and the reporter gets a, can say, like, this is wrong or whatever. But like at the Times, it would, it, it's not necessarily smiled upon to push back. So I didn't think anything of it. That Friday I got, I was homesick, I think, or working from home. And I got the the news that they were going to kill it. And I couldn't understand why. And and in the communication that was given to me was that we think you're saying that seg- <laughs> segregation is only bad because it hurts white people. And after I what? finished blacking out. So um, <laughs> <laughs> What's happening? I took the story and I messaged a, a, another black climate reporter uh, at a different publication and uh, and I was like, can you do me a favor? I, I need to push back, but but before I push back, I want to I want to get checked. That's not me. And he read it, and he was like, yeah, you know, there are some issues with like structure. I would do this a little bit differently, but he's like, this is a great peg. I would, um, there's you know, and you're not saying that. Yeah. So I went and I pushed back, and it took a day. It took a full day of pushback to get them to agree to unkill the story, and to edit it to the way that they liked. Um. So eventually, I think, and and this is how this is how paranoid they were. And I, I think the final version was like on Sunday and then Masthead went through and read every, this was like a 700 yeah. word story. This was not a very long story, but for whatever reason, because it touched on race and climate at the same time, it freaked them out and they were uncomfortable with it. And they went through a line by line edit of this, like what was to me a very standard to study story, right. you know, and I, I right. reached out to a King historian and on um, advice on one of my editors and like, it was like clearly buttoned up. Right. And it did. Well, like people read it, which is like, my gut is right. And 
then I didn't do another story about race for almost a year. And then Al Gore's people re- reached out and were like, we read this story that you did on King. Mm-hmm. We're coming, we're going down to North Carolina with Reverend Barber. And my desk editor was on vacation, so I didn't have to ask her for permission. And my direct editor just said, go do it. And that was how I got my second story that touched on race in the paper. And then my third was a study story about how um, Native Americans are disproportionately impacted by wildfire Mm -hmm. because of where many, many cases because of where reservations have traditionally been cited. And that was like everything I could get pushed through. None of this is surprising to me or Tammy, but like, you know, generally they have, you know, they will never tell you what the logic is, but you, you can tell, you can feel it, you know, um, at least that's been my experience. And I've been in that same position where sometimes somebody who's like an editor up top will try and explain to me how I should be thinking about race, you know, mm -hmm. and my thought to them is, and like, they have like some idea in their head that somebody that they talk to who might be a minority told them and they believe that that person is right and that I'm wrong and that therefore like I have to agree with their friend you know and there's like in my head I'm always just like why did you you know like what am I supposed to be doing here you know if you want me to write about like you know like am I just supposed to like why don't you write it then you know (laughs) like you write the piece about how you feel about race don't throw me as cannon fodder in front of it because you know like because like you don't want to get canceled just like be free you know write about it but like What's the, uh, what do you think the rationale was? Like, yeah. why do you think they were trying to have you not write about race so much? I became kind of a pain in the ass. Like I, especially like once I knew I was quitting, I just started saying the quiet parts out loud, you know, right. in meetings and things. And finally, my, uh, somebody uh, told me that the big problem was that um, climate was seen as an activist beat and race was seen as an activist beat. And so if you mix climate and race together, you're mixing two activist beats together and it seems to challenge her objectivity. Interesting. Why? And so, wow. but the other thing that I didn't realize at the time is that I wasn't doing the traditional poor black, poor brown community is being harmed by this thing. Right, right. Everything I was doing had a little bit more nuance to it, a little bit more complexity. And I think the, the King story in particular, I think what irritated certain people is that what the story the, the the end result of that story is that your whiteness won't protect you yeah right yeah. and i think that was extremely unsettling for some people to hear but partly because i secretly think i'm data from star trek that's just like not how my brain works. <laughs> 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 like data with the you know when he briefly had an emotion chip um because my brain immediately goes to like the most logical place and then like i process the emotional part later and so yeah i didn't recognize that i was doing a thing that was like triggering Mm. and then over time it became very clear that what she wanted that what was expected of me was sort of these like very staid science stories that didn't actually talk about the intersection of climate and people and for me and i think especially after i left the Times, but even the freelance work that I do, so much of what I do is like the science is where I start, but ultimately why we care about climate change as a society is because we care about people. Yeah. And so leaving the people and leaving the context out of that situation just seems baffling to me. And that would come up over and over again. So this isn't race related, but I'd done this story. I'd gone to Iceland about like losing fish. Um, and this was another one that I had to fight for. And not the the losing fish part, but there was a part in the story where I was like... it. So basically because of climate change, fish are moving 
poleward. So uh, right. to the Arctic in the Northern Hemisphere and to the Antarctic in the Southern Hemisphere. And in Iceland, they had lost this one fish called Capelin, which is mostly used in like processed fish things and like fish meal. It's not like a fish that you eat. And I was writing the story and I knew that like most people in the United States had never gone to Iceland and most people in the United States don't actually eat fish. If they, and if they do eat fish, it's shrimp. So right. I was writing a story about a weird country they'd never been to and a weird fish they'd never eaten. <laughs> um, and I needed to make them understand why it mattered. And a huge part of why it mattered is because fisheries management is actually a huge source of conflict between industrialized nations. So much so that at one point during like the Cold War, Iceland was fighting with England over cod and they were, Iceland was like, fine, if you want these fishing grounds, we're just not going to, we're not going to surveil Russia for you anymore. If their submarines end up in our water, it's your, you know, you got to worry about it. Or, you know, like, they're right. literally like, we're going to let the Soviet Union nuke you. <laughs> like, right, right. How do you like that cod yeah, now? <laughs> and then the other sort of secondary issue is that as the fish move, because it's such a critical source of protein for so many coastal communities, People have to migrate because they can't feed themselves anymore. Right. And so those were the two points they wanted to pull out of the story. What they wanted was this cute story about how Iceland was adapting to climate change and was going to have to adapt their fisheries to climate change. And I was it. giving them more yeah. complexity. Right. And so I had to fight to keep those things in. And I was just having so many of those fights. I was like, what am I here for? Like the whole reason that this matters to somebody living in New Jersey is because of the conflict yeah. and the migration. It doesn't matter to them that Iceland is to like farm fish instead of like catch them wildly you know i feel like so much of what you're saying i'm just drawing like a kind of labor beat analogy because i think there's this also similar phenomenon where labor reporting traditionally comes out of a business desk and yeah. so you know 100 years ago that was kind of like where it was housed and and now there's this kind of new generation of labor reporters that sit sort of in the way that a climate reporter sits like it's mm -hmm. a it's a sort of um it's a beat that people have a lot of skepticism about that they automatically assume that you'll just be like a sort of rabid activist only on the worker right. side not reporting anything else out you'll only do the human angle and you won't have any facts and figures so this whole kind of toggling between like a, repu a reputable kind of like empirical desk and a kind of like human story, I think, is a real challenge on these beats. Um, right, and they all have conceptions yeah. of how they do it. I'm sorry, Tammy. Absolutely, yeah, no, yeah. exactly. And I think like what you were saying also about the kind of like grooved narrative of race is really important and is is definitely, I think, a thing that Jay and I have thought a lot about because it is this like, yeah, if you want to have a story about like black victims of climate change or a sort of like yeah. quite obvious like disparate impact story or something like that is a thing that people will know and be able to sort of like digest. Um, but if there's anything else that's more complicated, it's just so hard to sell. I agree. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and then that thing that you were talking about is something that it, it's what Tammy mentioned too, which is just like for the people who are listening to the podcast who are not in the media, there absolutely is a barometer of like activistiness that is in the head of every single editor and in the heads of, the reporters yeah. where like you can't go over a certain amount of activistiness but each person's calibration is way different you know mm -hmm. and that actually sometimes you come across people where they say well it seems activisty and you're just like wait what you know like <laughs> we're like they have like they have like inputs into their activisty barometer that you don't even <laughs> understand you know you're just like wait, yeah. what? <laughs> wait which is it sounds like that's what you sort of came across which is like why is it activisty for me to like yeah. to talk about these two things like together but man that is so like 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 you know like there's zero doubt in my mind <laughs> 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 like, 
I don't know. I've worked at all these institutions too. That's how they work. You know, it's like, and that the person who's generally making that dis- determination is like somebody way up and everybody underneath that person is basically in line with that person because all they really care about is what that person thinks. You know, like yep. they don't actually care about anything about, they might agree with you, but they're just not going to tell you because the last thing they want to do is publish something that the guy way up there goes like, what is this activist <laughs> stuff, you know? And that, that's how these places work. And anything that's that's controversial or anything that like seems like, you know, like is outside of the general bar of what they do, right? Like, I don't know if the Washington desk, right, for example, has this mm-hmm. problem, right? But maybe they do, you know? But like, if, if it's sort of meat and potatoes type of stuff that they always do, then I think it's mm-hmm. less so when it's new beats, like climate or whatever like that, then it's like... yeah all over the place and then like in the end like as a reporter you have no idea who you're trying to satisfy and the best thing you can do is just do your thing and then if it's not working just leave you know but yeah. that's also really hard to do yeah, for a lot of people definitely. so congratulations on having <laughs> <left>. <laughs> <laughs> well Kendra, i was also curious about um so kind of like what is the responsibility or like the particular role or the kind of like added value of having people of color in climate coverage? Because mm-hmm. one of the things I've been thinking about in obviously like COP27 is is next month in Egypt. Um, and I know that you're concerned about, you know, not only disparate impacts in the United States, but globally, like what does it yeah. mean to, you know, be under climate siege in the global South? And I've been th- kind of thinking about like whether like black and brown people, Asian people have a kind of like transnational like transmitter type role in that because it's not necessarily the case that people like you and me would be connected to people across the world but sometimes we are like sometimes we Mm -hmm. have sort of like organic family connections or just like interests because of you know historical stuff in our families or the way we came up so i was just curious like if you if if you could kind of comment on like the domestic and international dimensions of the role of, of people of color in climate yeah, so the big thing coming up in COP27 is this idea called loss and damage. And it's the generally the idea that um, certain countries have contributed more to climate change than other, and that, but certain countries are going to be harmed more than others. So like Pakistan is still dealing with the consequences yeah. of that summer flood, that water is going to be there for quite a long time. And then they're going to have to rebuild after that. Nigeria is currently flooding. Mexico just got hit by a Category 3 hurricane. Like, And this right. is just like this you know, this is like now, right? And these are all countries that like, if you compare their climate impact to the climate, the historical climate impact of say the United States, they've contributed very little to the problem. It gets even worse if you zoom out to something like small island um, nations, small, low lying island states. So countries like um, in the Caribbean or countries in the South Pacific who've done almost nothing on the global scale in terms of contribution to climate change, but are like literally like the land is eroding underneath them, right? And so how do they a, adapt to climate change and and sort of offset these consequences? And also how do they um, mitigate the harms? So like how do they get off fossil fuels and how, how do they um, deal with the harms that are really coming their way? And most countries, most of the developed countries essentially don't want to accept liability. So they don't yeah. really want to pay for it they're sort of um, but they don't want to admit that they don't want to pay for it and i think one of the things being black and brown or being or in you know asian being a person of color does is we become to a certain degree like the country's conscience if you're looking at people sort of within the united states because you know we realize that these behaviors are untenable um and then i think kind of glo- globally um there's a shared language when you go to a lot of these um 
conferences and these spaces to be able to talk to people about what they're facing in terms of recognize, like coming from a place of being marginalized, even if we are in many ways, you know, just as culpable, right? Because we live in the United States, our footprints are huge, just like inherently. Um, and also, I just think like in general, I, I recently interviewed, not for climate, but I recently interviewed this um, paleogeologist at uh, Wes- Wesleyan. And one of the things that she was talking about is that like we need diversity of voices because you need diversity of perspectives and climate change is a huge sweeping problem. And if we only have the same people at the table who actually created this problem, A, they're probably the least well suited to fix it, but B, um, they're going to create solutions that harm other people. And so we need lots and lots of people at the table who are able to be like, hey, what did you think about this? Did you think about that? Did you think about this? Did you think about that? Because that's the only way we're going to get the solutions that don't leave people out. Yeah. I also think like in America, like, you know, that if you have like any type of progressive coalition or messaging, that it just can't, it can't be like all white people anymore, you know? And because <laughs> it just can't, you know? I mean, like it needs to be, People need to feel like it's inclusive and, mm-hmm. you know, that's a big victory, I think, in terms of shifting attitudes, but like, I don't know where I live, you know, like there's nothing that people tune out faster than like a bunch of old hippie guys, you know, yelling about <laughs> <something>, right? <laughs> but I think that that's true in a lot of places now, you know, and, um, I think that it's, it's sometimes hard to admit because you want to believe like, you know, like, oh, well, you know, like like this is how the world works type of thing but it has shifted a bit you know and i do think that it's it would be very difficult to like and i do think that this is a uh, challenge that the climate you know activists need, should i'm sure are thinking about all the time you know um but one that i haven't seen too much movement on which is that like it still feels very much like a sort of 501c nonprofit type of um uh older white type of group of people with some young people that you know are all sort of associated with Greta or something like that right and that so I think I think that's less true I think that's more who gets coverage right because there was a big blow up and three cops ago I think there was a photo of like Greta and three other climate activists sorry it was technically a photo of Greta with three other climate activists but they had cropped it I believe the AP cropped the one black uh, Vanessa Nagada, I think is her name. Uh, she's a Ugandan climate activist. They'd cropped her out of the photo. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> literally so cropped classic. her out of the photo. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a question also of, like, not who's necessarily there, not necessarily who's active, but who gets profiled. Who yeah. do you see? Right. Which is more reason to have, to have like, a more broad, yeah. Cold. Yeah, because, yeah, like, I, I would say that is true. Like, the, you know, I went to Standing Rock a couple times, and it was always framed as, like, a, you know, indigenous sovereignty question it was never really like some people would talk about in terms of climate but not really Mm -hmm. you know it was mostly like they are drawing a line in the sand and they're not going to move because that's the emotional story that people wanted to see you know Mm -hmm. but it was very rarely like uh cast as like anything involving climate i think Um, yeah even though it's obviously both like right right i think and that's the whole history of like indigenous intervention in this stuff yeah, it's tough because like a lot of these old school TV people and old school news people, like um, especially the higher up you go, they 
have this perception that if it's about climate, then it's boring, you know, and so they yeah. just like kind of want to turn it off at all times, which, um, you know, I don't know. I don't think that that's true anymore, but it is definitely like a perception that's out there, I think. One of the things that I've been watching or been trying to do is I've been trying to watch more. I've been trying to see how climate change shows up in culture. So like when I was at the Times, I did a story about climate change and like songs in popular culture. So like Billie Eilish is All the Good Girls Go oh, to nice. Hell. And I like, <laughs> All Star was kind of one of the earliest ones. Um, I interviewed Pitbull. <laughs> I love because that. Because he, <laughs> which is like the only time a climate journalist gets to interview Pitbull because he has an album called Climate Change and another <laughs> one called Global Warming. Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. Wait, Pitbull has, wait, Pitbull has an album called Climate Change and one called And another Global one Warming. called Global Warming. Wow. wow. I that guess, should like, be our being, new theme I, song. Maybe being from Miami, like it's like super, in your, you know, like maybe it's yeah, like really sure. intense for him, you know? He said he learned about climate change from his mother, which I thought was really oh. interesting and lovely. Oh, that's very that's sweet. So sweet. <laughs> um, and then when I was at Gimlet or at How to Save a Planet, I did a story kind of leveraging that list on climate change anthems and looking mm. at like what makes an anthem and why the climate movement doesn't have one. And so lately I've been, um, and then like a year or two ago, I did a story on like climate change in, in film. And I interviewed um, Roman Emmerich, who did um, Day After Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is all me just confessing that this is really just I like watching. I don't watch art house films. I watch uh, whatever the opposite of that without sounding offensive to Roman Emmerich. <laughs> the, the Day After Tomorrow is great. I saw that in the theater. And there are all these kids. And there's like, for some reason, there was a bunch of teenagers in the theater. And they were just like hooting and hollering and screaming you know like because it was the so wildest thing about that movie is there's a scene where one of the uh one of the girls who's like huddled in the library for warmth because the whole plot is like there's right, a right. rapid onset of ice age and she's like the future that i plan for is gone and there's a really interesting congressional testimony with jamie margolin who's one of the who runs a youth climate activist group essentially seeing something really similar and it was so eerily familiar that i like actually emailed her and i was like has she seen this movie and he was like she is not <laughs> but um but one of the things that i think is really interesting is really um is it's showing up more and more in television i just watched um i just binged the netflix series the partner track oh my god i saw you tweeting about this and i was like (laughs) asian american crossover (laughs) i found it very enjoyable it is definitely like a 10 episode romantic comedy series with a love triangle and everything Totally. But the B plot is a climate change B plot. It's about an oil company. She's a she's a merger and acquisition lawyer. Her big client is like this evil oil company that is trying to buy out this other oil company because it wants to kill its renewable energy division. And Whoa. she needs okay. to secure this far. deal in order to make partners. Sorry. Yeah. It, it starts ramping. Like, no, it's, it's good. Like, I- it's slow, and then you're like, "Wait, is this climate?" And then I should like, keep it's going. I was just like, "Ooh, I hate corporate lawyers." Gross, and turned it off. But I think I should keep going now. But anyway, go on. I think you should keep going. Yeah. <laughs> and so is that's it, kind oh, of it's like Art and Show. Oh, I didn't know that this show existed. Yeah, uh, Netflix knows exactly what I like, and apparently, what I like is romantic <laughs> comedies with a climate change theme. <laughs> <laughs> they should make a little like uh, you know that they have the little header, you know, the, just for you, climate um, romantic comedies. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so to your point, I do think it's interesting that it is showing up more and more like in culture and in references. There's a Norwegian show that I started watching, which is um, Russia basically takes them over because they they stop drilling for oil Mm -hmm. Um, and sort of all of the politics and intrigue that go into that. Nice. No, I definitely think the the question of the anthem is interesting, though, you know, 
Um, there needs to be like another farm aid or something like that, I guess. To... So, yeah, what was really interesting is that we ended up digging into the history of We Shall Overcome. Um, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting is a reason, it, I mean, there are many reasons why it worked as an anthem, but a huge one is nobody owned it. It was always kind of in the public domain, so you mm. could use it and you could remix it. And sort of one of the reasons why I think anthems have failed is because most people don't do that anymore. All right. There's no yeah. like sort of, yeah. Well, there's the kind of like this land is our land, like the kind of Guthrie era type stuff. But yeah, yeah in right. terms of an updated anthem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, the Floyd protest anthem was Kendrick Lamar, right? Um, yeah. But that was even before Floyd. That was like even... Philando Castile, I remember. Um, yeah, there is no climate change anthem, right? The Captain Planet theme song or something like that. Where the <laughs> planet tears. You can't yeah, be my tear. I loved that <laughs> show. Um, okay, well, like, um, I don't know, Tammy, do you have any other questions? Like, we generally, like, we're up against an hour here, but, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, this was awesome. It was such a I, delight to meet you, yeah, big fans. You had, you told the most honest uh, how I got, to where I am in media story I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. It's very refreshing. <laughs> it's so refreshing. I was like, Should oh I have lied? <laughs> well, I don't know. You can answer that for yourself. But like, I believe it was one of the first ones that I heard where I was like, I believe every word, you know? <laughs> yeah, you went straight to the material conditions of your, you know? So we yeah, were very that. was awesome. That. that was awesome. Yeah. So Thanks. I Thanks appreciate for having that. me on. Thank, Thank you. For, you. Please come on any other time yeah. that you want to come on. But this is uh, this was really We look forward to the story on protests so we'll keep reading yeah it. i look forward to finishing it <laughs> um, uh, um, okay thank you um, thanks okay thank you for listening to our show um we do this once a week or sometimes twice a week and uh you know we are asking for your donations for the first time in a long time or your support um you can support us at patreon.com slash ttsgpod or goodbye.substack.com either place for five dollars a month you will get access to bonus episodes like the one we just recorded in which we answered all of your questions and you get access to our discord server in which there are hundreds of people talking about everything from the nba to k-pop or to korean dramas to left politics to food to television that's about it i think right like <laughs> um, art sometimes there are great conversations that happen in there um and tammy and i pop in and have uh, and are there too honestly it's probably the best place where you can probably get the most unfiltered version of us not that you know there's much filter here um and uh thanks as always to our producer may shots and um there's one more thing i have to do which is um later today um, there will be RSVPs open for our December 1st event in New York. This is in conjunction with uh, New York University. Um, Tammy, like, what, what, what is the organization at NYU that we're doing this with? Yeah, so I have a residency at the NYU APA Institute, and um, our most exciting event of the year is this Hoshu J. Kang, Tammy Kim event which is going to be yeah. kind of a launch of Hawes' book and celebration of, of his memoir, Stay True, and also just having Jay in town because, Jay, you haven't been around to do any TTSG stuff in a lot, like, ever. So we're really excited to have you in the city. Yeah, like Kendra, I do not like to get on planes. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, but um, we're going to put more info in the show notes. But it's free, so RSVP yeah. and bring your friends. Okay, uh, we will see you next week. Bye, Tammy. Bye.